for Matthew 19, the very words of Jesus about marriage in his time, marriage and divorce in particular. Listen to what Jesus says, starting in verse 1. Jesus has been traveling, and it says here, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, or asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, that is Jesus, answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Grass withers, flowers fade, but God's authoritative word stands forever. You may be seated. So you've heard the statistic, I'm sure. You've heard it probably a million times in our culture. And it's probably one of the most shocking ones we carry around in our culture. And it's this, that one out of two, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That is the worst uh, marriage rate, so to speak, divorce rate rather, in Western culture. Sociologists tell us that in fact that number is actually deceptive and much lower And here's what we can make of the number. You should know that the 50% is actually an urban legend. Roughly 90% of Americans get married by the age of 50. The urban legend is that 50% of those end in divorce. The actual data shows that divorces peaked in the 1980s at around 40% divorce rate. But divorce has declined to somewhere between 20 to 30% one quarter to one third of all marriages ending in divorce. The decrease is not all that it seems. Less people are getting married now or are marrying significantly later in life. And living together prior to marriage is really basically normalized in our time. Regarding religious people like you and me, uh, those statistics show that those who practice their religion, and that could be any religion uh, you name, uh, the, the rate drops so that divorces only occur 10 to 20% of the time. This debunk, debunks, of course, the myth that uh, serious Christians divorce at the same rate of the, as the world. Nonetheless, one in five or one in ten marriages in, among religious folk ends in divorce. So, Instead of 50% of marriages ending in divorce, culturally only 20 to 30% end in divorce, and among religious people, 10 to 20 end in divorce. Wow, isn't that impressive? Somehow in our culture we actually celebrate this, so much so that we live in what would be called a divorce culture. 
that this is somehow a good thing. Because anyone, Christian or not, who looks at this has to admit, whatever the numbers are, divorce surely is not the way it's supposed to be, especially in how we do marriage relationships. And I know for sure that even in my family and in your family, every family here has been touched by this issue in some meaningful way. It is a tough issue to talk about. It's a tough issue to hear about. No question about that for all of us. So we all come to this with some level of thoughts, maybe wounds, that we all have to deal with. Living with the fallout of divorce is difficult at times. And yet we need to ask, in a culture where divorce is normalized, what does Jesus actually say about this? What does he say about marriage? What does he say about divorce? What does he really think about this? Especially for those of us who call ourselves Christian. Well, we're going to see some answers today in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is going to talk about the significance of marriage and even the significance of divorce and its role in a culture. And I hope that in this process, we're going to have three threes and one gospel hope come out of this. Three threes and one gospel hope to tell us what Jesus thinks about marriage and divorce and how we're to live in light of that. And so let's dive into the text and get into the three threes and the one gospel hope that we have in our text. In Matthew 19, we find Jesus in the very first verses moving from the north to the south from Galilee to Judea, of course, everybody should move from north to south. Don't we all agree with that? Sorry about that, northerners. We love you guys, and I love you. Thank you for being patient with me. So as they're moving south, Jesus is moving south, he apparently has all these people gathering around him. The scholars estimate it could be thousands, maybe up to tens of thousands of people coming out from all of the small towns to see Jesus and to hear him talk. His popularity polls are up big time at this point in the book of Matthew. He is, uh, his polls are, are going well. The CNN and Wall Street Journal polls as well as NBC News polls are going like crazy and gangbusters for him. Yes, even better than Trump. Pharisees, who are the leaders of Judea in particular, even into Galilee, were the religious and also the political leaders of the time, were watching Jesus closely because he seemed like a threat to them. With all his popularity and with so many he was influencing, he felt like a threat. And so what they do is they come to him in our text and they question him. They test him with questions, which they do all the way throughout Matthew. And they try to do this publicly with kind of gotcha questions. Gotcha questions like you see in a lot of these presidential debates. And they go right for the jugular for the ultimate gotcha question right off the bat in Matthew 19 for one of the most popular issues of the time in verse 3. Look at what they say. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Why are they asking this at this point? And why they do it in front of huge crowds where they're all listening in to this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees? Well, the answer is clear. It was the popular assumption in Jewish culture of that time that people could get divorced for any reason they wanted, any cause, as they brought up in the verse 3 of our text. 
The prevailing view of that time, that you could get divorced basically for any cause, came from a guy named Hillel, we know about from extra-biblical literature, who uh, taught that uh, you could uh, literally, as it says in Deuteronomy 24, from Moses' own words, uh, give a writ of divorce for uh, any reason. Uh, This was the, so to speak, liberal view of divorce and marriage. It was the low view of marriage in that time. And uh, that uh, is really why they brought it to Jesus, because they wanted to trap him, and they wanted to get him in something that nobody in the culture would like to hear in the process. So what they were promoting is a view of divorce that would go like this. If the wife burned one too many dinners, the husband could say, I'm out of here. If the husband was insensitive one too many times, the wife could say, you're out of here. And on a more sinister level, uh, if, if a man or a woman were unhappy or unsatisfied in their sex life, their communication, their money, any reason you could imagine, they could ultimately give each other a writ of divorce, say, we're done, we're out of here with each other. This same low bar for uh, understanding of marriage and divorce was not only in Judea uh, and Galilee, but it was also all over the Roman Empire. We know from Paul and his travels, and even in 1 Corinthians 7, among other letters, that divorce was very common among the Greco-Roman peoples all over the Roman Empire. It was easy to get married. It was easy to get divorced And in many cases, I'll tell you that a lot of men got so tired of marriage and so many marriages, they finally would get a concubine, they would have the concubine, they could have, uh, live life the way they wanted and kind of live in a lover, and they didn't have to live with the consequences of all they did. This was the popular view of the time, of the crowds that were listening to Jesus in this conversation. So, given this challenging question from the Pharisees, how did Jesus respond to the divorce culture of first century Judea. Well, this is the first of three threes. The first of three threes. And Jesus gives three truths about marriage in verses four through six of our text. Look at what he says. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What are three threes I want to get? I want to give you three C's as a part of the first of the three threes. Three C's that we're going to talk about. And let, me, let me get the setting for you here. Jesus is pay, pointing the Pharisees in their question back to Scripture. Did you notice that in our text? He goes to the original intent of marriage back in Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve. He even quotes Genesis 2.24 when he talks about how the two become one flesh. And please notice, Jesus does not appeal to the popular view of the time, the convenient view of the time, the cultural conversation of the time. He actually points to Scripture as the authority of what God's intent was for marriage. He even asked them, have you not read And he asked them that because what they were doing is they were taking one little verse back in Deuteronomy 24 and building an entire theology of marriage from it for a convenience culture of marriage versus using the whole of Scripture to understand what God intended 
in marriage. Again, when we face questions about what we're to do, we have to follow Jesus' lead. How are we to live our lives for Christ? Go to the Scripture. Have you not read? Go to Scripture and find the answers from the Lord. In light of these uh, appealing to Scripture, Jesus highlights three C's. And here are the three C's that are based on Scripture that describe the quality of marriage that he's talking about. And here it is. The first, he uses the language of C, covenant. Covenant. He says, God made man male and female. God joins them together. Did you notice that? And uh, he also says that God helps them become one flesh. This is all the language of covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Well, in our day, when we make binding relationships with each other, we call them contracts. And a contract goes like this. I agree to do this for you. You agree to do this for me. Do it in business. We do it in all kinds of contexts. But in marriage, it's a covenant. And a covenant doesn't have just two parties. It has three parties. And guess who the third party is? God. And so when two people say, I will do this for you, I belong to you, you belong to me, when we're this way with each other, in a marriage relationship, we have God as our witness and he is a part of this marriage. He oversees it and he witnesses it and binds it together. That's what a covenant is. God is a witness to the uh, commitments we make to one another in marriage. And so this really makes, helps us to understand that there are more than just two people involved in a marriage whenever that happens. Scripture teaches God himself is involved and he puts the, the marriage together. I mean, think about it. If you're married or thinking about getting married one day, your marriage came together not just because you made a choice. God was involved providentially and overseeing that marriage coming together. He puts you together in a unique way. Now, this is true for both believers and unbelievers. That's what we believe as Christians. But I will say this for Christians who are among us, those who are thinking about getting married, young people, here you guys are. When God speaks about marriage, he says you're to marry only in the Lord. Find another Christian and marry them. That's what 1 Corinthians plainly states. Because once you enter that covenant between two Christians, you want God approving of that and being a part of that covenant even between two Christians. What's the second C of the three C's in the first three? Uh, Jesus says this, A man shall hold fast to his wife, and the two become one. This is the language of C, companionship. Companionship. Marriage companionship is that exclusive relationship of intimacy, of sexual pleasure, and yes, Lord willing, of progeny, of children, being in the relationship if God so allows. Let's give the third C. The third C Jesus brings up is the issue of C, commitment. What God has joined together, let no man Not even the parties involved in the marriage put asunder. Here Jesus is highlighting that this is clearly one of the most serious commitments anyone could make in their life. So much so that vows before God are involved. You promise to love and to cherish till death do you part. Now the the, the impetus of this vow thing is profound. Remember the third commandment says... um, 
that uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When you include God in this call of a covenant vow, it's serious business that you call on his name to be involved. So the implication is simple. We are called to nourish and cherish. We promise to be connected in sickness and health as long as we both shall live. So you've got covenant, you've got companionship, and you've got commitment when it comes to Jesus' understanding of marriage in, these, in this text in 4 and 5. And you've got to know something. Jesus saying that in that time, and I might even say this time, it was shocking stuff. I mean, this is Jesus' version of shock and awe teaching, where he's blowing people away by saying in a no-fault divorce culture, you can't get divorced so easily. Now, the Pharisees didn't like this, of course, because Jesus has now taken that low bar of divorce and, and marriage, a marriage and divorce, and making it now a high bar for marriage and even regarding issues of divorce. And so they are struggling with this, and they proceed to ask him a question. But before I get to that question, don't we have to say that this is the kind of culture we live in today? We live in a no-fault, culture, no-fault divorce culture. That's the legal language of our, of our nation, where most states have that view. And you've got to wonder, what's the result of a no-fault divorce culture? Well, Barbara DeVoe Whitehead, in her book, uh, The Divorce Culture, uh, talks about this when she says that we now live in an age where, uh, where divorce back before the 20th century happened only like 5% of, of marriages. But now we live in an age where divorce is so common that we do something called expressive divorces. Expressive divorces. And what does that mean? Well, expressive divorces is where if I'm unsatisfied with my life, if I'm unsatisfied with my spouse, any aspect of my spouse, then I start to think, hey, uh, I need to express myself so I can grow, so I'm going to get out of this marriage and go to get more freedom so I can grow. That's the kind of twist that goes into it. This all began in the 1960s when the divorce rate went from relatively low to just skyrocketing to what we've seen in recent decades. So a no-fault divorce culture creates expressive divorces where I need to express myself so I'm going to leave my spouse and end this marriage. But there's a second way that, that divorce culture affects us in how we do marriage, and this comes a little closer to home for all of us here. And it's this. It, it brings up the rise of the 50-50 marriage. The 50-50 marriage goes like this. I will do this if you do that. And if you don't come through enough times for what I want from you, I'm out of here. That's the 50-50 marriage. Scripture in a covenant is talking about a 100-100 marriage where I'm 100% in and the other person's 100% in. And the downside about a 50-50 marriage is it tends to be very performance-oriented. Performance-oriented marriages go like this. If you don't put out, I'll punish you. If you don't do what I want you to do, you're going to pay the price. But a 100-100 biblical marriage goes like this. I will give to you even when I'm not getting in return. I will be 
offer giving love because Christ has given to me and I'm to give to you. This is meant to be giving love. This is a different way of doing marriage than the way a divorce culture promotes. Because it's all about giving up and sacrifice to love versus getting what we want and saying, I'm checking out if I don't get what I want. This is how God expresses himself to us in love. But here's the interesting thing. The Pharisees in our text, they don't want to actually buy this. They have a really hard time with the original intent of marriage till death to us part. And so they're looking for an escape clause in that 50-50 marriage. They press Jesus further in verse 7. They ask him, they say, well, what are you talking about? They're saying, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus responds, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Here's what they're saying. You ready for this? They're saying, look, if you read the Bible, it says that he, he commands us to get divorced if there's something we don't like about our wives. Do you see the twistedness of that? Taking Scripture and twisting it around versus missing the whole idea of what marriage is meant to be? And as a result, we come here to the second of the three threes. The second of the three threes. What God has revealed to us about divorce itself. All right? So here's the second of the three threes. And the first of the three is this. The first biblical point that Jesus brings up about divorce is, is, it came up actually as an allusion to Malachi 2.16 that was read or, or earlier. In that text, God chides uh, Judah for its lack of faithfulness to, God, to him and its lack of faithfulness in their marriages, how the divorce culture had taken over there. Older translations of that text says, says that God hates divorce. The Pharisees were making out that God was like, okay with divorce. Like, yeah, go ahead. Just take care of it. It needs to, needs to happen. But Jesus is raising that bar and saying, no, God actually hates divorce and that he doesn't want it to be a part of the norm of our lives. But that brings us to the second of the second three. Uh, number two says that while God hates divorce, God does allow divorce under certain conditions. Jesus sums up what those conditions look like in our text. He talks about the hardness of heart. And what is he talking about there? What does hardness of heart mean? Well, here's what he means. Sometimes sin gets so bad in a marriage, so damaging to the covenant bond between a man and a woman, that it breaks that covenant bond. And as a result, the person who's being wounded is free to end the marriage. When sin gets out of control and does damage in a marriage, then God allows marriage, uh, divorce in a marriage. Hard hearts are, are in marriage usually happen over a long period of time. And it leads to serious uh, and sometimes catastrophic emotional, relational, spiritual trauma in people's lives. When that happens, a spouse is free to divorce. They 
are allowed to divorce is the best way to say it. This is a conditional divorce view of marriage. Now, some may say here, wait a second, isn't marriage a sacrament? And really, isn't it so sacred that no one should divorce or remarry as they would sin? Well, the answer is no. Jesus made it clear you can actually get divorced. And you should know that marriage is not a sacrament. Sacraments are redemptive uh, issues that go with our salvation. Marriage is a creation thing, not a redemption thing, though certainly redemption comes into marriage. So, someone else here might say, okay, well, since uh, Jesus says we're free to marry, I mean, to divorce, whew, man, finally I can get rid of that ball and chain. Finally, I can get rid of the ball and chain of my spouse. And I'd say, hold on just a second. <laughs> hold on just a second. Divorce is allowed, but under very specific biblical conditions for Christians. We all must remember that every marriage here has issues. Some of them are very difficult ones. Seeming incompatibilities and outright sin cloud our, our marriages sometimes. And sometimes your spouse's sin and junk is right up in your face or yours is right up in their face. And it's hard to see. What do we do about this? Well, very often husbands like yours truly will often say, okay, I promise to do better. I'm going to fix it. Well, that usually doesn't go very well because we do that in our own power with our own ingenuity and we totally miss our wives in the process. So guys, don't go there too fast. Certainly you want to have Jesus fix it and Jesus tame your heart so you can get into uh, doing better in your marriage and changing your marriage. But that brings us to the women. The women will often accommodate. Oh, it's not that bad. Boys will be boys, things like that. Don't minimize sin, women. And don't minimize your contempt for them at times in that either. The fact is, Jesus calls us all to need him more in our marriages, not less. And the result is, when we try and fix marriages on our own terms and in our own ways, we end up in a cycle of despair about our marriages because we come to the end of ourselves. What you really need in every marriage is the third person of the covenant. You've got two. You need the third, Jesus Christ. That's why he's involved. To save you from yourself and your own sin. To save you from your sin that you carry out together as a couple. You can't fix it yourself. You need someone bigger than you. Dying on a cross for you to save your marriage. The great error of our time is I can go down the road, buy a book, I can watch Oprah, I can figure it out how to fix my marriage. F forget about it. You can't do it on your own. It's time to look to someone bigger than you who can save you from yourself. Jesus Christ allows divorce in certain circumstances, especially when major harm is going on. And so that brings us to a larger question. What are the grounds for divorce, the biblical grounds for divorce? This is the third three in our three threes today. What are the biblical grounds for divorce? Well, look at verse 9 of our text. What does Jesus say in Matthew 19? He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another 
commits adultery. Here Jesus lays out that key phrase of what is the exception that can allow people to divorce, and that is this. He allows us to divorce for three reasons. In verse 9, he uses sexual immorality as one of the grounds for divorce. What is that? Porneia is the technical word there in the Greek. And porneia is a seriously damaging sexual sin, such as adultery, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, usually practiced with that hardness of heart, a persistent sense of keep, keeping going with the sin so that it does great damage to the spouse and the covenant bond. Do you realize that sex is actually the sign of marriage? That God intended that to be the symbol of what marriage is supposed to be. Now, you and I think the symbol of marriage is our rings, right? Well, that's a cultural signal, a symbol. In the, uh, in the first century, in a lot of cultures, the cultural symbol for being married was a head covering. But the real symbol from Genesis 1 and 2 for two people in bond together as the covenant sign of their bond together is the sexual relationship. Anytime that is done with another person, you're not saying, I belong to you, you belong to me. You're lying about who you belong to. So sex outside of marriage with your spouse is out of bounds and can be grounds for divorce. That brings us to the second reason for the grounds for divorce, which comes from 1 Corinthians 7, which says, Paul tells the Gentiles who had moved in and out of marriage that they should stay together with their spouses, even if they were unbelievers. But however, in the midst of that text, he also says that divorce is allowable in the case of abandonment. Abandonment being the refusal of a spouse to take care of the basic needs of another spouse. And that, again, over a long period of time, typically. So we have sexual immorality, we have abandonment. Those are two of the, the grounds. The third ground is cruelty, physical abuse, the opposite of nourishing and cherishing a spouse. Now, you have to know that that often comes from a man. Not always. Physical abuse is the complete opposite of caring for somebody's body and soul. It is a breaking of the commandment, thou shalt not kill, by damaging body and soul and diminishing the dignity of a spouse. God calls us to be pro-life with our words and our handling of each other in marriage so that we defend the dignity of others. Now let's be clear. We live in a culture where it's easy to get a divorce, a no-fault divorce culture. So we have to watch our hearts. I've given you three grounds for divorce, but we have to watch our hearts that we don't become fault-finding with our spouses. Oh, how fault-finding shows up when we grow disillusioned with one another in our marriages. How quickly we find the faults even in other people who we're in close relationship with because we're dissatisfied or uh, disappointed in them. But you should know at that point that one thing is clear. 
Marriage is not, man, man is not made for marriage, marriage is made for man. You don't have to stay in a marriage if there's any of these things going on. However, any of these three grounds that I told you, however, you might consider that sometimes God can redeem a marriage that seems irredeemable. When we first started Redeemer 14 years ago, we had a couple in our church. Their names are Harry and Evelyn. They're an older couple. And Harry and Evelyn um, had quite an adventurous life together as a couple. At one point in their marriage, they got divorced. Uh, Harry got tired of Evelyn. Evelyn got tired of Harry. Harry took off to the beach. Well, over time, uh, some interesting things happened in God's work in their lives. They were professing Christians, uh, even though their marriage was clearly broken. And, he, and God slowly worked in Harry's life so that he came back and started talking with Evelyn. He started dating Evelyn. Pretty soon, they got married again. God, even in that case, redeemed in the midst of a really a, a difficult divorce. God is that kind of God, that he can redeem anything and put people together and reconcile what seems to be irreconcilable indifferences. So what's our hope in the gospel for that, in light of this great story? Well, I'll tell you this. If you, in, ca in the case of offended parties, who often end up getting divorced because sin has become so rampant, that is done, done uh, damage to the marriage bond, you can get remarried, as Jesus really says in this text and others as well. You may freely get married if you're the offended party. If you're the offending party in a marriage under those three really dastardly things, you can only get remarried if you do a lot of reconciling work through Christ. Uh, you can actually uh, taste the grace of Christ through forgiveness, through his grace, through the cross, for the things done. Go back and do restitution, reconciliation with as many people as you can. The result being that, you're that you can have a, the shot at being remarried again. If you know someone uh, who actually um, is thinking of getting married, or if you're thinking of getting married, here's what I'd say to you today. For you who are thinking of getting married, you should marry only in the Lord. Think about how the maturity of the person comes out. Don't look for perfection. You're not going to find it. But look for maturity. That's the category of Scripture, is not perfection, but maturity. If you are married now, don't fool yourself by saying, I'll never get divorced. Recognize that sin can have its way in the best of spouses and call on Jesus to lead you in that three-way covenant of marriage. In other words, as my friend Tom Hawk says, <laughs> when you're in your marriage, you're going to find out how really sinful and broken you are and how much you need Christ. Call on Him for your marriage every day as you learn to love your spouse in new ways, as you learn to grow to love in new ways. Jesus calls us to actually preserve marriage with a commitment that's grounded in Him and not in ourselves. 
And so I conclude with this gospel point today. I bet you didn't know this, but did you know that God divorced his people in the Bible? In Jeremiah 3.8, it says that God divorced Israel. That idolatrous, adulterous group of people who were whoring around after other gods. Did you know that God divorced them? Kicked them out of the land? That's what it says in Scripture. But do you also know that Hosea, he said things like this to them. He said, how can I uh, hand you over Israel? My heart recoils. My compassion grows within me. I will not execute my judgment on you. I am God, not man. I am God, not man. In other words, I love differently than men do. I get engaged. Oh, I'll divorce you for a season, but I'll come back and find you. I'll hunt you down in love because I'm so passionate about you. Because I won't let you go. The God of the universe is so committed to you reconciling with him personally and even having a life of reconciliation in your marriage, he is more committed to your marriage and you than you are. This is great hope for us. For even when we encounter these things, and sometimes in friends' marriages and our own marriages, these dark things, these three grounds for marriage, this gives us hope that we can even reconcile with dark things. There are people in this congregation who have experienced the grounds for divorce, but God has reconciled their marriage. Our God is that great. And I challenge you to consider in a culture of divorce, in a culture where it's easy marriage in, easy marriage out, that our God wants us to have not just a high view of marriage, but a high view of him as the savior of our marriage. That is really your only hope and my only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come to you in this difficult subject. And we pray for those, Lord, today who have either been wounded directly by divorce, by the, the, the sin of this world affecting their relationships, uh, either as a spouse or even a child uh, or a family member. We pray that you bring your balm of grace and kindness, this kind of passionate love that you express in Hosea for a wandering spouse. We pray that you would give them that kind of love. And we pray, Lord, for those who've been offending parties who we know that you would give us love for them, forgiveness, grace, even as that takes time even as that takes years and a process, lead us in that road. And finally, Lord, remind us that we're your spouse. And you so love us, you're going to pursue us even when we're wandering off and whoring after other idols. Praise your name that you are that kind of God to love us. You are more committed to us than we could ever be to you. Glory to your name. You are our one true Savior in Christ's name. Amen.